Hi, I'm Michael Azarad, Editor-in-Chief of the TalkHouse, and welcome to the TalkHouse Music Podcast. J.G. Thurwell began making the proverbial extreme noise terror in the early 80s as scraping fetus off the wheel, you've got fetus on your breath, fetus under glass, and so on. Fetus made well over a dozen albums, each with one-word titles like ache, nail, limb, and vein. This was music that was wildly ahead of its time, and was a major influence on many bands, very much including Nine Inch Nails and Ministry. Then Thorwell began to widen his palette dramatically, composing themes for imaginary films with Steroid Maximus, and releasing 1995's Gash, an incredible record, ambitious in the best way, that somehow managed to be released by a major label. He's since become an acclaimed new music composer, writing for groups like Bang on a Can and the Cronus Quartet, and he continues to work in rock music, collaborating with a wide range of musicians from the Melvins to Zola Jesus to Sonic Youth. And he does the score for the Venture Brothers cartoon series on Adult Swim, as well as composing film scores and designing complex sound installations. Oh yeah, he was also once in a band with Nick Cave, Mark Almond, and Lydia Lunch for three days. Kronos Quartet founder and first violinist David Harrington once said, I've always wanted the string quartet to be vital and energetic and alive and cool and not afraid to kick ass and be absolutely beautiful and ugly if it has to be. He got what he wanted. One could argue that the widely acclaimed, chart-topping, prize-winning, multiple Grammy-winning Kronos Quartet is the most famous string quartet in the entire history of string quartets. Over their 42-year existence, They've exposed many different kinds of audiences to many kinds of music by breaking down, or at least ignoring, barriers between genres. They've played art tango with Astor Piazzolla, an entire album of pieces by leading African composers, an entire album of Bollywood music. They played live with Tom Waits, David Bowie, Paul McCartney and Bjork, and covered Bob Dylan, Ornette Coleman, and Seeger Rose. For many years, one of their favorite encores was Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze, which you're listening to right now. Kronos is largely devoted to contemporary repertoire. They've worked closely with iconic composers such as Steve Reich, Arvo Pert, Terry Riley, Philip Glass, Laurie Anderson, Henrik Goretzky, and Osvaldo Goldijov. And lately, they've also begun collaborating with and commissioning pieces by a wide variety of younger musicians. Bryce Dessner from The National, Greg Saunier from Deerhoof, Eamon Tobin, Glenn Kochi from Wilco, and Richard Reed Parry from Arcade Fire, among many others. And with their Under 30 project, they also commissioned pieces by composers under the age of 30. And they've commissioned and performed two pieces by J.G. Thurwell, Aramicophobia and Nomadophobus, with a third piece on the way. So we thought we'd put Thurwell together with Harrington and see what these two brilliant and visionary musicians had to say to each other. So here's J.G. Thurwell and David Harrington in conversation for the TalkHouse Music Podcast. One of the first things I wanted to to talk about was epiphanies, musical epiphanies. And, um, you know, I've had a few in my life which have been sort of, you know, eureka moments or just moments of revelation where I'm hearing music that I always wanted to hear but I didn't know how to articulate it in my head, you know. Um, And I wanted to ask you about your epiphanies because I think, you know, you know, the things that brought Cronus together and things that, that excite you, you know? Well, one of the things that got me, in fact, the thing that got me started playing string quartet music when I was 12 was joining the Columbia Record Club 
hmm. which in those days you could do if you sent in a penny. Yeah. And then you got totally addicted, right? 12 albums for a penny. Or <laughs> yeah, 12 like albums that. for a penny. And then yeah. your parents ended up owing all kinds of money for years after right. that. And on the, the first offering, it, it just happened that at that time I was reading a biography of Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was right at that point about the late quartets. Mm. And so one of the first uh, things I noticed in the Columbia Record Clubs w- was that the Budapest Quartet had just uh, recorded a new set of the late quartets. And so I, I got one of them. Mm-hmm. And so happened it was Opus 127. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know that piece, but it's the first of the late quartets. Mm-hmm. And it opens with this unbelievable E-flat major chord. Mm. It's just so great. And I put that on as a 12-year-old, and I had to make that sound. I had to find a way to do that. Mm. And within a week or so, I was you know, at the public library, and I checked out the music, mm-hmm. the score and the parts, and called up some friends, and we <clears throat> sat in a practice room at the University of Washington, and I'll never forget, I gave the downbeat, and for about half a second, it sounded like the record. Mm. And that's all you need. Mm. That's all I needed. Mm. Mm. And after that, it was a, you know, it was a disaster. It was a very, turns out it was a very hard piece to play, mm-hmm. ultimately, and all that. But that first chord, just just sounded great yeah. and I wanted to do that yeah. and there have been other things a lot of other things like that in, in my life where you know somebody makes a sound on an instrument or you know they do something with, a, with their voice or mm. somebody has an idea that it just seems so amazingly wonderful mm. that it just has to be explored Yeah, and I just for me, it's it's really simple. I I follow my ears, mm. and I don't pretend to know anything about music really, how it works. You know, mm. I I don't know how it works. Mm. It's it's a, it's a mysterious kind of thing. Mm. But you just hear something that you fall in love with, mm. and you just want to be with it more. You want to follow it to the ends of the earth. You want to try to recreate it you yeah you know it's say how the hell did they do that how the hell did yeah is it done you know yeah how does that work for you i mean same with me i mean i often i'll hear things and i'll go how the hell did they do that i'll, I'll hear a piece by someone and i'm like how the hell did they score that how the hell was um what what was going through their mind what's on the page to make that happen you know i mean like i like when i um I think one of, one of one of mine was when I first heard Penderecki and you know Which clusters you know are like you know the Threnody you Threnody know? yeah um, and uh, and then I saw him conduct that and that was you know then when I see someone you know something performed or conducted then that's that's a second revelation you know it sort yeah. of unpeels the process and yeah and. That makes me want to go. Okay, but I'd like to explore that myself. I mean, how, how the hell do you do that? Or what would the J.G. Thirlwell version of that be? Or right. you know, um, for me, I'm, I mean, I've I've had a few revelations, which have been sort of 
put me on left turns and right turns you know, um, throughout my life. But one of the first ones that I remember that I can kind of articulate was um, hearing this radio special in when I was about 15, and it was um, uh, The Residence. And um, it was about 1975 or something like that. And I guess they'd put out some records, but they were pretty off, off the radar. And this was, not only did it, it sort of, it, played a bunch of their music, but it, it perpetuated their mythology, you know, and which was very mysterious and um, very opaque. And, but then when the, the sort of dissonance that they used in these, it was very otherworldly. And mm-hmm. when I heard well, it, I was- Which album was it, do you remember? Well, it was a radio special. Oh, okay, so it was okay. drawn from a lot of their albums, I think. You know? Okay. But it was probably Third Rock and Roll had been out and Meet the Residents had been out by that time. It was maybe, I think Fingerprints was mm. was probably the current album at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I heard that and then that was, like I said, you know, it was, it was like hearing the music that you always wanted to hear but you didn't know that you hadn't heard it yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... Several years ago, I came across this uh, recording that was made in, I think it was 1916, here Mm -hmm. in New York. And it was uh, recorded by a singer named Zabella Panosian. Mm -hmm. And it's an Armenian song called Grung, G-R-O-U-N-G. And Zabella Panosian sings this one high note that just totals me out every time I hear it. It's, it's mm. just like, how does a human being find that kind of expression? Mm. I have to try to do that mm. with a bow. of that piece made by uh, our friend Mary Kuyumjin. Mm. And um, that's the way it happens for me. Every once in a while, somebody will make a note. Mm. And I remember the first time I heard uh, Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner, you know, the Woodstock Mm. performance of that. And I just thought, that is the most amazing... um, Sound. Mm. Someday I've got to try to, I have to learn how to do that. And then a few years later, I heard Black Angels by George Crumb. Mm. And within that piece, I heard some things kind of like what I remember remembered from hearing uh, Hendrix. Mm. Mm. And um, so in 1973, when I first heard uh, Black Angels on the radio, um, all of a sudden, my my world, kind of, for a little moment, it made sense. Mm. You know, um, it was pretty weird, it, mm. a weird time, and to be a, you know a young American person wanting to 
wanting to do music, it was very confusing. Like, like, what do you do? You know, I'd, I'd grown up playing um, Haydn and Mozart and mm-hmm. Schubert and Beethoven, and then when I was 16, I started playing new pieces and stuff. And and as time was going on, I was getting more and more into the m- most recent stuff. That's what I wanted to hear and mm. do. But then hearing Black Angels, um, there were s- some unbelievable moments and notes in that piece and it's it's i had to get a group together to do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so really that hearing that performance and it was the new york string quartet just mm-hmm. released on cri they just released that mm-hmm. black angels i later met the disc jockey that played that on the Early. radio station mm-hmm. <laughs> that was pretty cool do you know what you started <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, and and you know that's one of the great things about radio and mm. and and making recordings, isn't mm. it? I mean, you just never know when somebody's going to come in contact with something. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's kind of nice to have those little little things out there that people can access at randomly, randomly, and and sometimes. You know, sometimes there there are moments in life when when you really need a certain sound or a certain piece. You remember something that you've heard and you want to hear it again for yeah. whatever reason. That yeah, I've always wanted to try to make those kind of things. Yeah, I think my mind is full of those things. Yeah, you know, that I'm that I'm grasping at. Um, you know, when I when I started were making making records. Um, when, when was that? Anybody? It was night. Well, I I think I was in a group that made the first album in 1980 and I made the first Fetus record in 1980 it came out in 81 but one of the motivations that I felt back then was making the music that I always wanted to hear mm-hmm. you know which was kind of there was a lot of different things happening at the same time you know in what I wanted to create but it took me years of trying to do that yeah. and because um I was bold enough to go ahead and do it, but I didn't necessarily know what I was doing. I mean, and there's a, there was a kind of a bit of, sometimes a bit of a short circuit between what I heard in my head and what ended up on magnetic tape. But there was a matter of steering um, what, what emerged out of the creative process, um, which might have changed what I'd heard in my head and maybe it was better, maybe it was worse, maybe it was different, you know. Mm. And following that path, especially because I was just, um, I was one person in the studio. I was, wasn't working with a band or working with an ensemble. Um, so hearing the parts isolated would suggest other things and the recording techniques really informed that and it's always informed um, what I've done, the technology's kind of informed what I've done. Um, but now, you know, and a, a very exciting form of technology to me is um, creating scores. Um, and I see that as a, as, as a technology. Yeah. Um, but having gone through, you know, starting with, you know, having a couple of little cassette players and bouncing sounds back and forth to eight-track recording studios, then the advent of MIDI, and then the advent of sampling, and the accessibility of computers, and going through all of that technology to then 
reach um, creating scores and rescoring my work and then writing for you and writing for you know other musicians that to me is the most exciting thing where I can have a page and give it to someone who interprets and um, and hearing you know that blossoming off the page it's really exciting to me it, it's it's a marvelous process uh, whoever came up with the idea of musical notation uh, mm -hmm. well it certainly did me a big favor right <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it, what I love about it is that it, it allows access to so many different things that there's there's no way you could could have done it uh, there's no way I could have possibly played all the different sorts of music that I've been able to play mm -hmm. without notation mm -hmm. just couldn't couldn't have done it I don't think mm -hmm. um, it, it's also, you know, the more I do it, the more I realize how important it is to get away from the notation yeah. and to internalize. You know, it's like what you said about in, interpreting. To, the, the greatest moments that I've ever had of interpretation are when you're, you're actually dealing with the music you're hearing inside and you, you, you might be seeing it, but it's that's a superfluous to actually molding, shaping it in, you know. Mm. So how important is improvising for you? I mean, well, I, to me, the, the best performances that Kronos have ever done um, are like improvisations. But I mean, we might be working from a notated score, mm. but but the the second by second um, shaping of the music is is happening. You know. As you listen to each other, um, absolutely, and, mm. and you know, playing off of what you know, somebody does something. Wow, that was cool. Now, can I can mm. I <laughs> contribute to that? talking about um, you know radio as a way of introducing works and how it in introduced you know me me to the residents you to George Crumb and um, you know you you uh, you seem to be very hungry for hearing new composers and new works and you know discovering people and so so what so with new media the internet and and um, there's so much stuff out there, and I'm curious to. Uh, I mean, I know that you you're really into digging deep and, and finding new people and stuff. So, what what sort of um, avenues do you go down to to find people and these days? Well, I you know one one of the problems with being a musician, I'm sure you'll agree, is it, it happens in real time. And there's not very much of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and from all the evidence I can gather, there's increasingly less of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so um, especially I, as we get older, that's it. Mm. You know, and and having a um, 
I mean, I, I try to keep my ears open for um, those things that have touched people that I that I'm um, that I know and that I whose opinions uh, I value, and then. Um, you know, someone speaks really enthusiastically about something, or somebody really hates something. Mm. Then I've got to check it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've learned that 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 kind of passionate listening is something to trust. Mm. Either way, it doesn't have to. You, you don't have to love it. Uh, in fact, I was talking to somebody yesterday on the plane about a a mutual friend and and. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Margaret Lyon, but Mar Margaret Lyon was the um, uh, chairman of the music department at Mills College. Mm -hmm. She brought Terry Riley and Pondit Pranath and Berio and Mio and mm -hmm. you name and well, she ended up bringing Kronos there too. Mm -hmm. And she created this community. And apparently, there were, you know, some of the major um, composers and musicians that were there, she, she just couldn't stand their music, but she knew that it was something that had to be heard and should be done. Mm. And I really, I, I mean, I loved Margaret. I thought she was just one of the great mm. spirits of ever mm. that I've known. And, and finally heard yesterday that, well, she didn't really always like everything, but oh, okay. she championed everything. Mm. And the idea of creativity and for me, that's um, now that's kind of what I want a, a concert to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want a concert to be a place where people think about things mm -hmm. and think about life and the fragility of you know this place that we get to share for a little while. And yeah. and, and you know, music is such a incredible um, uh, kind of doorway mm. into so many feelings and, and sounds and colors and cultures and, um, and I, I like those concerts and I want to try to make those kinds of concerts that um, where you just feel like you're more in awe of the possibilities for yeah. the next piece yeah. and the next Step in tomorrow yeah. than you've ever been before. Yeah, I feel you know that's that to me is the most is the ultimate um, experience that you can have with a concert and with music because I feel it's sacred, you know, and um, that's coming from an atheist, you know, um, but but um, that's a sacred time and it's a time that can be cherished and it's that time that you can turn everything else off and lose yourself yeah. in that experience. Yeah. No. I mean, I, th I think the, um, you know, one thing I've noticed, um, I mean, when I started Kronos, I used to write letters and, and take them to the post office to, you know, I'd be writing letters to composers all over the world. Mm. And I might not hear from them for two months, mm -hmm. you know. And j just this morning, uh, I mean, I was in touch with this uh, amazing musician who lives in France, practically in real time on email. You know, and, and I, I was just thinking, it's really an amazing thing. Yeah. 
and we, we almost kind of take it for granted now. And so the, I, th I think one thing that I'm trying to guard against um, is that kind of listening where you only tune in for, for a split second mm. and then you tune out and you're on to something else. Mm. One thing I try to do every day is, is be sure there's like a dedicated hour or two where I just won't let myself get interrupted mm. in my listening. Mm. I find that it's hard, harder to do than, than I thought, yeah. actually. Well, but, it's hard to get people to engage, you know, now and have people um, turn off their cell phones. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. and that's one of the great things about a concert or you know mm. a show is, yeah. is you you tend to do that. You still see people sneaking. Peeks. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, I mean that that kind of communal um, experience that you know in, in a concert is at least it allows that that um, kind of that way of of approaching. A, a, an experience that has a breadth of time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I, so, in a certain way, I think concerts are becoming more and more important. Yeah. Yeah. In that way. Um, they kind of take us away from YouTube and, and all that. Mm. And, and yet, I'm a, I love YouTube. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, I can, you know, somebody will mention somebody to me, I can go back to my hotel room and hear music immediately yeah. it's, it's just cool because <laughs> I, I think you mentioned once before that you discovered someone on YouTube and um, and then I was wondering I mean whether you go down these YouTube wormholes for three hours and sort of oh, yeah. end up like yeah, and, up in different yeah and, then, and then I'll have no idea how I got there and, yeah. and, and wh where I'm at it. <laughs> yeah right yeah. yeah that that happened with this this really great uh, group uh, from Palestine mm -hmm. um called Ramallah Underground. I, I cannot tell you how I found out about them, but it, mm. was, it had something to do with YouTube and the internet and all that, and I, I ended up, and fortunately I was able to find out how to reach them, mm. you know? Mm. And uh, that was cool, but I, I suppose I could, if I checked the history on my computer, I might be able to figure yeah, it out, yeah. but I, I don't know. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes it perplexes me why uh, our culture um, doesn't value musicians more. Hmm. I mean, not, not that, you know, I, I don't need uh, uh, Donald Trump type wealth or anything like hmm. that, but uh, I, I just sometimes feel the society just kind of takes us for granted, mm -hmm. you know? And one of the one of the I've I've decided that one of the things the real reasons is because they call it playing music. 
hmm. and that play isn't valued enough. Yeah. Certainly not. I mean, my daughter's a first grade teacher, and she's someone that values play, mm-hmm. values what you learn from play mm-hmm. in, in a group setting. And, you know, in, in Kronos, when our music is the most alive is when we're playing mm. with it. But it's not, you know, you know how hard every musician that you know works. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> there's not, there's so, no such thing as a lazy musician. No, I mean, there's no days off. There's no, no time no, off. No, um, and who, yeah, the, the as guy, a the, musician, who would want one? I mean, wh- yeah, yeah. what else is there to do that's better than music? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of administration that goes hand in hand with that. And, um, yeah. and that can really eat up your time. And I have to make sure that every day there's time set aside to be creative. You know, I have to yeah. do something creative every day. Yeah. Um, because that's where I get my juice. And that's how right. I move forward. And, um, do, you find, do you work early in the morning? Yeah, I do. I mean, I yeah. get up. I get up. I go to, I go to sleep uh, late, and I get up early. Yeah, but, um, that's pretty much what I do. My my secret is naps. Oh, naps are great. It's my, yeah, it's my secret weapon. Yeah, the ten minute nap. That oh yeah, few, that, mm. where you get totally, you you have no idea what day it is or what hour yeah. of the day. And <laughs> it's like you can reset the day. I know it's really yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, Thomas Edison. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I read about. Thomas Edison and his naps. Mm. Yeah, I'm trying to perfect the one-second nap. Oh, the one-second nap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. But it consists of like um, blinking, and when you blink, you go deep into a dream state, and then you wake up. And um, it's happened to me. But it happens. It happens during times of um, extreme exhaustion. Yeah. Um, it's not. So, it's not so much refreshing as it is jarring. For me. Uh, um, I make sure every day that I've heard music I've never heard before. Hmm. Absolutely, that that's just a requirement. Oh wow, that's that's really uh, amazing. Um, do you, do you you know have a list of things like on the sideline that you've got to get to? And, <laughs> you, you don't want to see what my music room looks like. I, yeah. It's embarrassing to take anybody in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of off limits. Yeah. It's so messy. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's messy and yet you know everything has its kind of place yeah. and there's piles of things that need need yeah. attention and yeah, listening. I'm, I'm and, the same. I have I'm, I have um a big bout of shelf building ahead of yeah. me before the end of the year <laughs> to get everything off the floor. Um, but yeah. I'm the same. I Personal mean, craftsman to come in and yeah, help I've, with the shelf. Oh, I've, I've perfected it myself. Oh, you do it yourself. I have my, oh. own, I have my own methods, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm, you know, when it comes to um, to music, I'm, I'm, I've likened myself to a whale that, that uh, eats plankton. Krill you know? or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of devouring this stuff and um and and then something filters out the other end subconsciously things go in there i guess and um uh yeah it's it's really amazing like what sticks mm -hmm. in music Mm -hmm. and i believe it's moments you know Mm -hmm. i mean I, i don't think there's any piece that i know of like uh, any of the 
quartets that I've played that in my mind I could go all the way through and sing it or even imagine it all the way through. But mm. I can remember amazing moments. Yeah. And uh, I guess for me that's that's what listening. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I look for those magnetic points mm. and uh, they kind of keep it all together, mm. I think, for me. You've been to uh, Amoeba yeah. In, yeah. over on Haight Street in mm -hmm. San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, a trip there um, usually takes three or four hours. Yeah. Because basically, I don't, I don't really believe in the categories. Mm. And it's kind of like you know walking down the street and um, you know you, you see things in in the little cracks in the sidewalk. That's where the life is is. Mm. You know, mm. the new plants are growing there. There might be a little tree or some grass or mm. Mm. you know there might be a bug or something. That's that's where the action is. Mm. And and so that. They they've got these neat categories of things, and um, I mean it's it's a good way you know to to organize. Mm. Um, but I mean for me it's just as important to go to the opera section as it is the uh, hip hop or the mm. uh, you know avant garde or the country mm. western or whatever. I mean I I kind of want to check it all out if I can. Yeah, I mean, for me, categories have been something of a yoke around my neck, you know, for a long time, and I don't consider what I do to be in any one category, you know, and I've covered broad spectrums of work, but I mean, I think that in, certainly if journalists are writing about you, they want to be able to sum you up in a sound bite, and right. then if someone wants to put you on their iTunes playlist, they have to right. put something down the bottom there, you know. Right. Um, and do, do you think that those those categories are actually getting kind of more um, structured and and stiff and and uh, kind of uh, I don't know less depends, flexible than I think you know it really depends on the you know the genre and and I think that there's a lot of laziness that's that's um, attached to creating these categories and mm -hmm. and I mean there's this vague nebulous term new music and I don't know what you think about that but um, I think it's probably less offensive than, than some some things but it doesn't really mean anything um, I think maybe there's like composition-based music or whatever, but but then there's some. Um, if you look at say electronic music, mm. there are there's a lot of really um, specific micro genres in that, which come and go, you know, and um, and there's people that work within those parameters, and people know what they're going to expect from from that and. Some people, you know, stick within that, and other people branch away from it. And then there's even um, record labels in electronic music which cater to one sound, you know. Right. And the, the artists on that label, you kind of know that you're going to get a certain type of sound if you get something that's on that label. And right. Yeah. So, um, 
that seems to be a kind of a more recent type of development. But you know, and then there's people that I mean, like you worked with Amon Tobin, you know, right. and he he sort of started off, I guess, in the world of drum and bass. And yeah. but what he ended up doing is again, it's beyond categorization. I mean, I I would characterize his work as maybe like um, sample based. Or you know, starting as as that is uh, the core of what he did. But That's one of the things that attracted me to his work initially was the way he used bowed string sounds. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, and he was able to do it live too. Not only on the recordings. I checked out a couple of his shows in San Francisco, and I heard the same thing. And I mm -hmm. thought, wow. The, you know the way he's listening is yeah. really interesting to me. Yeah, he's really he's incredible, and he's yeah. he's he's an artist who I've listened to his work and I've gone, I don't know what the hell he's doing. I don't know yeah. how he's doing it. He's he's creating some kind of a texture with a combination of sounds and repitching things and and melding things. He's a real master mm. at what he does. Yeah. days that I should know about? Uh, am I hearing these days? Last night I, I went and saw a really interesting um, guy who has an ensemble and it's called the Ashcan Orchestra. Have you ever heard of that? I have heard of them, but I, yeah. I see. And that was where, where are they from? Bushwick. This show was in Bushwick at the guy's place and I can't remember his name right now, but he did... Um, he uh, he makes compositions which with um, I don't know how he programs these things, but it, he's programming struck bells which are then interfaced with a a light grid which is on a panel with a lot of um, light bulbs on it, and then he had four other musicians and first they were working with um, working up from scores and they had. Um, small mallets and they were hitting this um, sort of sculptural structure that was in the center of them which was made of uh, circular saw blades that were um, mm. uh, kind of riveted together and it was very resonant and I think it was also mic'd up um, because there was something humming through the ceiling through the floor and um, and then they did a they did a couple of pieces with musical bells, oh. uh, which was accompanied by this programmed, um, programmed other sort of bell device. And then they did a piece using um, uh, electrical light bulbs, which uh, had the proximity to this object and create, it was like two oscillators. Oh, and wow. as the light bulbs moved around, it changed the oscillation. Mm. So that was um, that's something I saw last night, and that was exciting to me. I've seen him do something before. He had an opera at um, at Issue Project Room. Okay. And uh, so that's the thing, most thing that's most fresh in my mind. Oh, that's great! Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love it when a concert just 
um, kind of, first of all, there, there's something that just stays there in, in, in memory and then becomes this source of, of direction or, or mm. kind of leads one on to mm. the next thing, mm-hmm. you know. It's like, you know, music is, is it's kind of like this plant that's just kind of growing in, in so many directions all at the same time. And mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, only think about the leaves and all that, but then there's also the roots and yeah. <laughs> they're growing as well. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, what have you heard lately that's excited you? Uh, A new regimen. You know, um, there's this... Uh, my problem is I have trouble remembering the names. Mm-hmm. There's this trio from Korea that I heard that I thought was really great. And they play traditional instruments. One, one or two of them play traditional instruments, and I think another plays a guitar or something. And it's really, really cool. 1940. One of the great things about um, having done something for as long as I've done Kronos um, is, you know, you can, I mean, there's a lot lot to choose from now. Hmm. Like, uh, so um, a lot of the, the, the groups that play for us are playing things that we might have done 30 years ago or 20 years ago, hmm. something hmm. like this, some, some of our material mm. and and to hear it um, interpreted by another generation of players who, mm. who have grown up hearing entirely different things than I grew up hearing and yeah. so just the sound and the feel and all that is just different mm. and yet it's it's wonderful do you think it do you think the um, type of players that are coming out of conservatories now a different informed differently than they were say 25 years ago unquestionably yeah yeah I mean it's it, it's um, it, it's amazing really what what's available to mm. to us as musicians today think about it and and so the the people that are are forming their groups and are, are uh, playing music are, are just able to hear things and, and be in contact with yeah music in, in uh, lots of exciting ways yeah um, I mean I, I think you know whoever tries to play an instrument or sing or do anything in music you know is trying to learn to make the best notes they can mm, mm. you know and that's that's why musicians as you know it's why we work yeah the way we do and yeah try to get better yeah <laughs> and the, it, it's kind of like the more you um, the more you experience in music the the bigger the challenge to focus the that exp, all that experience into a 
a note. Yeah. You know, or whatever it is that you're doing. And, mm -hmm. um, you have more practice in doing that, but then you also have more information to work with to arrive at a at a destination. Yeah. 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 So it's... Uh, I'll never forget when... Uh, you know, I had a, a moment of doubt. I, I might have told you this before, but um, you know, I became a um, a grandfather uh, in uh, January of two thousand and three. And as you might remember, that's that's about when Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice and all those were gearing up our society for the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I had never told my daughter this until about a week ago, so she didn't even know this. But for me, um, that moment of becoming a grandfather became this big demarcation in life. And um, it was, I mean, I was, it was such a, it was and is an incredibly wonderful experience. And what came with it was this sense of responsibility hmm. you know okay I'm leader of the family here uh, I'm also away six months a year playing for strangers living out of hotels you know and so for me there became this moment of, of um, you know any musician could have told George Bush and Dick Cheney what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. We all knew what was going to happen mm. to our society and the world and the Iraqi people and the Americans. And, and, yeah. um, and for me, what happened was that I began to question my value as a musician. Hmm. Like, was I doing the most important thing I could do for my family? Basically, that was the question. And I began to get depressed. Hmm. And I thought, this is, something's not right. This, this has not happened to me in this way before. It hasn't happened. And so I thought, okay, of all the voices I've heard in my life, who, who do I hear in this moment of questioning? And the voice I heard was uh, that of Howard Zinn, hmm. a great American historian. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine uh, knew Howard, and, and I called him up. This was David Barsamian. And David gave me Howard's phone number. So I called up Howard Zinn, and I, it's like, what am I going to say to Howard Zinn? You know, I, I was shaking, I was nervous. And anyway, uh, Rosalind, his, his wonderful wife, um, answered the phone and Kronos oh we've been fans for 20 years Howard will be home in, a, in an hour uh, he's waiting for your call and so an hour later I called up Howard Zinn and, and uh, asked him if it might be possible for me to meet with him and a month later I was in his office and the one question I asked him led to an hour long discussion mm -hmm. and the question was what can a normal, normal person do Mm. in this time. And Howard proceeded to explain to me what a normal person could do. Mm. And 
in the end he said well musicians aren't normal people you know <laughs> that mm. was after he, <laughs> he explained and one of the things he said was that the the powerful people the George Bushes and Dick Cheneys of the world are actually afraid of musicians mm. and I had never thought of that mm. Mm. and as soon as I got that realization from Howard Zinn I thought Far out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm proud. I, you know, I can deal with this. And then he, he talked about the importance of 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 having a community. You can't do anything by yourself. Mm. I mean, you can do certain things by yourself, but you can't, you know, um, kind of create a movement. Uh, and then he talked about. Um, the importance of using every opportunity you have to be sure that it's very clear where you stand on things mm. and issues. Is that when you put the sticker on the back of your violin that said, this machine is a deadly weapon? <laughs> I never did that. <laughs> I never did that. You I know, think Woody Guthrie did that, didn't right, he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this machine kills fascists or yeah, something like that. Right. Um, I, you know, when... Um, in 2001, I was about to embark on a European tour, and um, we left for the tour on 9-10. <laughs> and we arrived in Amsterdam on 9-11. Mm. And the, um, the tour manager picked us up at the airport and said, what's going on in New York, you guys? There's bombs going off, and like, you know, I know what the hell he's talking about, you know. And got back to the hotel room, in time to watch the Twin Towers collapsing, you know, mm. and our tour was going to start like a day or two later. Mm. And um, so we started the tour, and the first couple of dates were, you know, fine, well attended, and but we're still trying to process what's going on. I mean, it was very confusing to see this happening at our, in our hometown from this distance and it was really hard to get a sense of what was going on you know and you know the keyboard player just wanted to quit and he was just like look I've got to go I've got to go back I've got to be with my people and stuff and um, you know and as the tour progressed there were less and less people coming to the shows because they were like World War 3 was going to break out that's what it seemed like you know and we talked about it and and I thought you know and sometimes people would say to me I can't believe that you didn't talk about what's going on on stage. And I'm like, what am, what am I going to say? You know, mm. um, whatever I say, it's going to come across as preachy and, you know. Um, but, you know, my feeling at that time and what I said to the keyboard player was, you know, the best thing that we can do is do what we do as best as possible, you know. Try to do it better. Yeah. 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 Um, that was, you know, that's all I could bring to the table at that point. Yeah. Apart from, you know. I think Leonard Bernstein said something similarly yeah. after the assassination of uh, President Kennedy. Mm. And, uh, um, yeah, the, the, the dedication that musicians place in their work and their offering to the universe and the notes mm. they play and that that is that is it yeah that, that it definitely is it and i i say plenty of what i think about 
in my music anyway. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, that it's all yeah, there. yeah. Mm. I mean, for me, it was it was this kind of intersection of of life events mm. because it's it's like you know uh, having grown up you know as a teenager during the uh, American War in Vietnam and and seeing that on television and then seeing it and the way it manifest itself in our society and then of course um, what was done to the Vietnamese nation and mm-hmm. people and, and then to think that that kind of thing was going to be happening again you know in another place and mm. and then you know all those years had passed and, and um, by that point I was a grandfather and and to feel just as helpless as I did as a 17 year old when you know I mean it, it, it was just weird mm. you know you, I mean I I think I mean I, I think I'll say it I, I just lost my nerve for a while that that like well what am I really doing you know and um, I guess I would suspect that you you question um, in fact, I know you do. You question your work all the time. Mm. I mean, it, you know, it's that. That's how you get better too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like it's a matter of finding the finding that balance where the inner critic isn't totally paralyzing you. I know. Mm. That's exactly it. It's, it's like, yeah, you you want to say things to yourself that are actually have a little bit of encouragement. Oh yeah, you've got to because. <laughs> You know, it's it's courageous to get out there and do something, and I think that you have to cut performers and artists a lot of slack for that, because um, yeah, well, that, that's the thing. We, you, you know, you walk down the street and you never know what's happened to whoever walks by you mm-hmm. that day, that year, that decade. You yeah. have no idea, mm-hmm. and you go into a concert hall. And you, or you walk on stage, and you have no idea what's happened to anybody on the, out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it literally could be just about anything. Yeah. And so, how do we arrive at something that's valuable? Mm-hmm. That for me, that's the whole thing that I'm looking for. Is mm-hmm. okay. I want to make something that is useful, valuable that some somebody can can say. Maybe in in the moment of incredible despair or a moment of ecstatic happiness or you know whatever, this is this is wonderful. I, I want more of this. Yeah. Oh, this <laughs> is know? moving. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the kind of music I want to find. And, yeah. And uh, I'm, I dedicate every minute of my life to trying to find it. And yeah. uh, I'm very thankful to Howard Zinn though for convincing me that the George Bushes of the universe are actually afraid of us. That, yeah. That, you know, Hitler must have been really afraid. Right. <laughs> Mao and Stalin and all these guys. <laughs> Thanks for that vote. Stalin was a, it was a poet and a singer, I think. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Apparently a good one. Yeah. Singer. Yeah. So there we are. What do you think? On that note, <laughs> we got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
And that's it for this edition of the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Thanks to our producer-engineer, Elia Einhorn. For more TalkHouse Music Podcasts, by all means visit our SoundCloud page or subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. And to read smart, notable musicians, like David Harrington, writing about new music, please do visit thetalkhouse.com music. <laughs>